Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Friday, February 9, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis. Looking at the front page of the front of the Globe Gazette today, um, actually I looked through the whole paper and there's not one local piece at all. So we'll be, uh, the Fort Dodge Messenger has quite a bit more local content today. So the front page of the Globe Gazette um, shows a photo of Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold speaking in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the headline of this large story is Justices Skeptical of Trump Case. The subheading is Supreme Court Seems Poised to Reject Efforts to Keep Former President Off 2024 Ballot. This is from the Associated Press. The Supreme Court seems poised to reject attempts to kick former President Donald Trump off the 2024 ballot with conservative and liberal justices in apparent agreement in a case that puts them at the heart of the presidential election. A definitive ruling for Trump, the leading Republican candidate for president, would largely end efforts in Colorado, Maine, and elsewhere to prevent his name from appearing on the ballot. The justices could act quickly, possibly by Super Tuesday on March 5 when Colorado, Maine, and 13 other states will hold primaries. Conservatives and liberal justices alike questioned during arguments Thursday whether Trump can be disqualified from being president again because of his efforts to undo his loss in the 2020 election to Democrat Joe Biden, ending with the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. And it shows an artist sketch depicting the scene Thursday in the Supreme Court in Washington as justices hear arguments about the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling that the former President Donald Trump should be removed from the primary ballot. The story continues, Their main concern was whether Congress must act before states can invoke a constitutional provision that was adopted after the Civil War to prevent former officeholders who, quote, engaged in insurrection from holding office again. There were also questions about whether the president is covered by the provision. In the first ruling of its kind, Colorado's Supreme Court decided that the provision, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, could be applied to Trump, who the court found incited the Capitol attack. But on a Supreme Court that prefers to avoid cases in which it is the final arbiter of a political dispute, the judges appeared to be searching for consensus ruling in the issue of congressional action seemed to draw the most support. Justice Alina Kagan was among several justices who wanted to know, quote, why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States, unquote. Eight of the nine justices suggested they were open to at least some of the arguments made by Jonathan Mitchell, Trump's lawyer at the Supreme Court. Trump could win his case if the court finds just one of those arguments persuasive. Justice Sonia Sotomayor sounded most skeptical of Mitchell's arguments, though she too might not vote to uphold the Colorado ruling that found Trump engaged in insurrection and is ineligible to be president. In another sign of trouble for the Colorado voters who sued to remove Trump from the ballot, the justices spent little time talking about whether Trump actually engaged in insurrection following the 2020 election. Lawyer Jason Murray, representing the voters, pressed the point that Trump's incited the Capitol attack to prevent the peaceful handover of power for the first time in history. Mitchell argued 
that the Capitol riot was not an insurrection, and even if it was, Trump did not directly participate. Trump, speaking to reporters after the proceedings, called the Supreme Court argument, quote, a beautiful thing to watch in many respects, unquote, even as he complained about the case being brought in the first place. Trump could be back before the Supreme Court in a matter of days to seek an emergency order to keep his election subversion trial on hold so he can appeal lower court rulings that he is not immune from criminal charges. That issue had a brief airing Thursday when Justice Brett Kavanaugh said, a more legally sound approach to disqualifying someone from office is found in a federal criminal statute against insurrection. Someone prosecuted for insurrection, quote, if convicted, could be or shall be disqualified from office, Kavanaugh said. Mitchell agreed, but with a caveat, which is Trump's claim of immunity, quote, so we would not concede that he can be prosecuted for what he did on January 6th, Mitchell said. The exchange was largely hypothetical, because while Trump faces criminal charges related to January 6th, he's not been charged under the insurrection statute. The justices heard more than two hours of history-laden arguments in their first case considering Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Chief Justice John Roberts worried that a ruling against Trump would prompt efforts to disqualify other candidates, quote, and surely some of those will succeed, unquote. Trump's lawyers argue that the amendment cannot be used to keep Trump off the ballot for several reasons. For one thing, they contend the January 6th riot was not an insurrection, and even if it was, Trump did not go to the Capitol or join the rioters. The wording of the amendment also excludes the presidency and candidates running for president, they claim. Even if they are wrong about all of that, they argue that Congress must pass legislation to reinvigorate Section 3. The lawyers for Republican and independent voters who sued to remove Trump's name from the Colorado ballot counter that there is ample evidence that the events of January 6th constituted an insurrection and that Trump incited it. Next story from the front page. Republican revolt blocks key deals in Congress. Lawmakers expected to try again as soon as next week. And there's a photo of Speaker of the House Mike Johnson uh, speaking Tuesday during a news conference on Capitol Hill. Homeland Security Senate Secretary Mayorkas was not, in fact, impeached by the House. A border security package instantly collapsed in the Senate, and foreign aid for Ukraine as it fights Russia is stubbornly stalled. The broken U.S. Congress failed in stunning fashion this week as Republicans in both the House and the Senate revolted in new and unimaginable ways against their own agenda. Lawmakers will try to do it all over again as soon as next week. Quote, this is the mob rule right now in Congress, and I'm ready for mob rule, but it's not a way to govern, said Republican Representative Victoria Sparts of Indiana. Just 48 hours put on display a spectacular level of dysfunction even for a Congress that has already set new standards for infighting, disruption, and chaos after last year's historic election, then ouster, of the Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It shows how deeply the Republican Party, under Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, is, by choice or by force, turning away from its traditional role as a working partner in the U.S.'s two-party system, 
to a new one that is rooted in Donald Trump's vision of the GOP. In dramatic back-to-back scenes this week, a closed-door shouting match of Senate Republicans testing McConnell's slipping hold on power late Monday, and Speaker Johnson presiding glumly over failures in the chamber he could not control Tuesday, provided new entries for the history books. Quote, Politics used to be the art of the possible. Now it's the art of the impossible, said Mitt Romney. He's a Republican from Utah and the party's 2012 presidential nominee. Quote, let's put forward proposals that cannot possibly pass so we can say to our respective bases, look how I'm fighting for you, said Romney, explaining the current mindset. We've gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. The next steps are highly uncertain as an emboldened generation of hard-right lawmakers allied with Trump are energized by the disruption eager to carry on with their emerging agenda, despite that GOP's slim majority in the House that forces Johnson to partner with Democrats to have any hope on most big issues. The House is expected to try again to impeach Mayorkas, possibly next week, if Republicans can boost their numbers over what was essentially a tie vote on Tuesday. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, who led the Mayorkas impeachment drive, is determined to see it to the finish as Republicans rebuke the Biden administration's handling of an historic surge of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. Crazy time, said Representative Hal Rogers, who, at 86 years old, is dean of the House as its most senior member, as he returned to Washington to vote for impeaching Mayorkas after suffering injuries in a car crash. I was hoping for something better, he said. Mayorkas, facing two articles of impeachment over allegations of refusing to abide by immigration laws and breaching the public trust, called the charges baseless. I'm focused on the work, Mayorkas said in Las Vegas, where his department is coordinating security around the Super Bowl. Republicans lost the impeachment by one vote, not only because three Republican lawmakers dissented, but also because one Democrat, Representative Al Green of Texas, surprised colleagues by leaving his hospital bed where he had undergone surgery to come vote, and he tipped the outcome. It's the kind of miscount many longtime Congress watchers said would have rarely, if ever, happened under the laser-focused leadership of Nancy Pelosi, the former Democratic Speaker. To up their tally, House Republicans are counting on either winning a special election to replace the ousted GOP Representative George Santos in New York or waiting for Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who has been recovering from cancer treatment, to return to Washington. Quote, They're unable to rally behind anything but extremism, said Democratic Whip Representative Catherine Clark of Massachusetts. In the Senate, McConnell faced a separate revolt over the border security package he had reluctantly agreed to pursue as a way to appease hard-right demands to link national security aid for Ukraine to an almost politically impossible compromise on immigration. As soon as the bipartisan package was unveiled, it encountered fierce blowback from fellow Republicans, led by Senator Mike Lee of Utah, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, and others, forcing McConnell into an abrupt about-face to abandon the effort. It was the second time McConnell, who has championed the national security aid for Ukraine, was forced to retreat 
as he did last fall when GOP senators rejected his advice and refused more overseas aid. Quote, time to disband the law firm, or the firm, Lee wrote on social media, a mocking reference to McConnell and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. In turning the page, and once again in today's Globe Gazette, there's there are zero local stories. So everything's pretty much national and international, including sports. This story, the headline is, Laos Storied Heritage Site Threatened. And I'm sure I'm going to mess up some pronunciation here. Laos, or Laos, or Laos, it's Laos. Landlocked Laos doesn't have the famous beaches of its neighbors to attract tourists, but instead relies on the pristine beauty of its mountains and rivers and historical sites to bring in visitors. The crown jewel is Luang Prabang, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, where legend has it that Buddha once rested during his travels. It brings all the elements together with its mix of historic Laotian and French colonial architecture on a peninsula at the confluence of the Mekong and Nam Khan rivers. But a multi-billion dollar dam project underway, 15 miles upstream, has prompted concerns that it could result in the city losing its UNESCO status and broader questions about what the government's ambitious plans to build multiple dams across the Mekong will do to the river, which is the lifeblood of Southeast Asia. When the Luang Prabang Dam is complete, and it's already well under construction, the river is going to trickle into a dead body of water, said Brian Eiler, director of the Washington-based Stimson Center's Southeast Asia program in its Energy, Water, and Sustainability program. The people going to Luang Prabang as tourists to see the mighty Mekong and see how the Leo people interact with the river, all those interactions are going to be gone. All the fishing, the meaningful local boating and commerce done by locals on relatively small boats will end. The dam is also being built near an active fault line, and though studies of the design conclude it could withstand an earthquake, local residents are worried. For Sam Phone, a 38-year-old tour boat operator and lifelong Luang Prabang resident, memories of the 2018 collapse of another dam in Laos that killed dozens and displaced thousands, blamed on shoddy construction, are still fresh. Many people died, he said. Luang Prabang is not yet on UNESCO's list of endangered world heritage sites, but the Paris-based agency has outlined a series of concerns, including the protection of historic buildings and the effect of the dam project on protected wetlands in the city's riverbanks, and is awaiting a report back from Laos. Previous studies carried out by authorities have not yet established whether or not the project could have a negative impact, UNESCO said in an email. The issue is to be discussed by UNESCO in July during its meetings in New Delhi, but in the meantime, the construction continues. The site is a hive of activity, with backhoes tearing shovelfuls of deep red soil from the hills along the river, which are then dumped along with loads of stone into the Mekong to form a foundation. The dam site is within view of the Pak O Caves, which are home to hundreds of Buddha statues and a popular side trip for tourists visiting Luang Prabang. Once completed, the project is expected to displace more than 500 families 
and impact twenty villages. Nestled among the mountains of northern Laos, Luang Prabang was the capital from the 14th to the 16th century, before it moved to Vientiane. I'll spell that for you. V-I-E-N-T-I-A-N-E. I'm not sure what the pronunciation might be there. Its historic center has numerous Buddhist temples, a former royal palace, buildings from the French colonial era, and a mountaintop shrine built around what is said to be Buddha's footprint. Several picturesque waterfalls are within a short drive from the city. A bustling night market boasts stalls selling traditional handicrafts, locally made whiskey, as well as trinkets made from fragments of some of the millions of American bombs dropped on the country during the Vietnam conflict in a campaign to try to disrupt communist supply lines. At a vibrant morning market, vendors sell brightly colored peppers, spices, fish, and more exotic food. Uh, many visitors arrive on small river cruise boats or by train on a new high-speed rail system that was built with funding from China as part of its Belt and Road Project, which connects the city with the Chinese city of Kunming. Next story, FCC outlies AI voices in deceptive robocalls. Calls mimicked Biden in New Hampshire to discourage people from voting. This is from the Associated Press. The Federal Communications Commission on Thursday outlawed robocalls that contained voices generated by artificial intelligence, a decision that sends a clear message that exploiting the technology to scam people and mislead voters will not be tolerated. The unanimous ruling targets robocalls made with AI voice cloning tools under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. That's a 1991 law restricting junk calls that use artificial and pre-recorded voice messages. The announcement comes as New Hampshire authorities are advancing their investigation into AI-generated robocalls that mimicked President Joe Biden's voice to discourage people from voting in the state's first-in-the-nation primary last month. The regulation empowers the FCC to find companies that use AI voices in their calls or block the service providers that carry them. It also opens the door for call recipients to file lawsuits, according to the FCC. The agency's chairwoman, Jessica Rosenworcel, said bad actors have been using AI-generated voices and robocalls to misinform voters, impersonate celebrities, and extort family members. And then the next story, Senate begins work on help for Ukraine and Israel. The Senate on Thursday voted to begin work on a package of wartime funding for Ukraine, Israel, and other U.S. allies. But doubts remained about what su about support from Republicans who earlier rejected a carefully negotiated compromise that also included border enforcement policies. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called the latest vote a good first step and pledged that the Senate would, quote, keep working on this bill until the job is done. The vote to begin work on the new package cleared by a, by a vote of 67-32, with 17 Republicans, along with Democrats, voting to move forward. Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, independent of Vermont, who opposes much of the aid for Israel, voted against it. Schumer, a Democrat of New York, 
has tried to salvage $60 billion in aid for Ukraine, as well as about $35 billion for Israel. Other allies and national security priorities after the and other national security priorities. After the collapse this week of a bipartisan agreement to tie border enforcement policies to the package, if the measure passes the Senate, it's expected to be even more difficult to win approval in the Republican-controlled House. Some Republicans in the Senate have also vowed to do everything they could to delay final action. And some shorts from the Nation and World Digest. Judge denies Navarro's bid to stay out of prison. A federal judge denied Trump White House official Peter Navarro's bid Thursday to remain out of prison while he appeals his contempt of Congress conviction for refusing to cooperate with an investigation into the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Navarro was sentenced last month to four months behind bars after being found guilty of defying a subpoena for documents and a deposition from the House January 6th Committee. The former White House trade advisor under President Donald Trump asked to be free while he fights that conviction and sentence in higher courts. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta said Navarro must report to serve his sentence when ordered, unless Washington's federal appeals court steps in to block the order. The judge said Navarro offered no proof to back his claims and had not shown any of the issues he will raise on appeal. Uh, He will not show that they are substantial questions of law. Our next brief, Pentagon completes its review of Austin. The Pentagon completed its review of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's failure last month to quickly notify the president and other senior leaders about his hospitalization for complications from prostate cancer and how the notification process can be improved, but no other details were provided. The 30-day review was submitted to Austin on Thursday. Major General Pat Ryder, the Pentagon press secretary, said portions of the review are classified, but the department will release what it can of the review. Austin has been scrutinized for keeping secret his prostate cancer diagnosis in early December, his surgery and his hospitalization on January 1, when he began suffering complications from the procedure. Military service leaders and the National Security Council were not told about his hospitalization until January 4. Only then did President Joe Biden found out. It took another four days before the reason for his hospitalization was disclosed. And then some really brief briefs. Ukraine war. Ukraine's president replaced his top general Thursday in a shakeup aimed at reigniting momentum in the war with Russia, appointing the commander of Ukraine's ground forces, Colonel General Oleksandr Sirsky, to lead the army. Our next brief, Red Sea. The U.S. conducted new airstrikes Thursday, targeting Yemen's Houthi rebels, destroying four explosive-loaded drone boats, and seven missile launchers that could target vessels in the Red Sea, the U.S. Central Command said. Our next brief, whistleblower. The CIA this week terminated a woman whose whistleblower account of being assaulted at the spy agency's headquarters prompted colleagues to come forward with their own complaints of sexual misconduct. Her attorney, 
called the action brazen retaliation. Our next brief, detained. Israeli forces detained two young adult American brothers and their Canadian father in a raid on their Gaza home on Thursday, relatives said. Next brief, helicopter. The military confirmed Thursday that all five Marines were killed when their helicopter went down during stormy weather near San Diego, and efforts were underway to recover their remains. In our final brief, protests. Minneapolis agreed Thursday to pay $950,000 to settle a lawsuit alleging journalists were subjected to police harassment and hurt while covering protests over the police killing of George Floyd. And there are no opinions, no obituaries in today's Globe Gazette. So we'll jump on over to the sports page, no local sports. But here's a story about the Super Bowl. It shows a photo of Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes speaking to the media as San Francisco 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy looks on during Monday's Super Bowl 58 opening night in Las Vegas. The underdog Kansas City Chiefs are playing for history against the San Francisco 49ers. No team has been the underdog in consecutive Super Bowls and won both games. The two previous defending champions to return as an underdog both lost. But the Chiefs have been defying the odds throughout the postseason. They were underdogs in victories at Buffalo and Baltimore. Now they've got to do it again to become the first repeat champions in 19 years. The 49ers are two-and-a-half-point favorites on Sunday, according to FanDuel Sportsbook. They're quite familiar with that role, having been favored to win each game this season. The past three teams to be favored in every game in a season, 2017 and 2007 Patriots and 2001 Rams, each lost the Super Bowl. So something has to give. One streak will end on Sunday. The Chiefs are 13-1 in domes with Patrick Mahomes. He has 33 touchdown passes and just three interceptions in those games. They'll be indoors at Allegiant Stadium. I just like playing football, so it doesn't matter if it's minus 30 or if we're indoors, Mahomes said. I'm just going to go out there and try to play the best I can. I'm sure quarterbacks will tell you it's easier to throw the football when it's in perfect conditions, so that's probably why. But for me, it's just going out there and competing, he said. Here are two stats going against the 49ers. The team with the better winning percentage is 1-15 against the spread in the Super Bowl since 2003. Teams who had a bye facing teams who played a wildcard game are 5-10 straight up and 2-12-1 and and against the spread in Super Bowls. Here are two stats going San Francisco's way. Niners coach Kyle Shanahan is 6-0 straight up as a favorite in the playoffs. Under Shanahan, the 49ers are 32-11 straight up and 28-14-1 against the spread when playing in the Pacific time zone for the second straight game. This will be the 31st Super Bowl with a point spread of six points or fewer. The winning teams also covered the spread in 29 of 30 games. Mahomes Travis Kelsey and the Chiefs were inconsistent on offense throughout the season and had to rely often on a strong defense led by Chris Jones. Brock Purdy and the 49ers 
have plenty of offensive playmakers led by all-pro running back Christian McCaffrey, all-pro tight end George Kittle, and wide receivers Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk. They've got a talented defense led by star edge rusher Nick Bosa and all-pro linebacker Fred Warner. But San Francisco has been susceptible on third downs. As good as sometimes we think we are, teams do a really good job of having really good plays. And no matter what the situation may be, we got to play hard and we got to play fast, said linebacker Dre Greenlaw. If they let Mahomes and the Chiefs extend drives and don't get off the field, it can be a long day. In the previous 57 Super Bowls, the favorites are 36 to 21 straight up and 27 28 to 2 against the spread. Pro picks leans slightly toward the 49ers in a close one that comes down to Purdy having to lead the team to a comeback win for the third straight game. So the pick in this article is 49ers to win 24 to 23. And that's all the time we have for the Globe Gazette today. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Center for the Blind and Print Handicapped. You can catch this and many other of our local programs as podcasts on our website, iowaradioreading.org. And a reminder that all material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of uh, people with disabilities. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and now I'm turning to the Fort Dodge Messenger. Front page story, Growing Fort Dodge, Economic Leader Visits Local Projects. And there's a photo of three women, and the caption says, Debbie Durham, uh, Director of the Iowa Economic Development Authority, speaks with Sadie Anderson, co-owner and event manager of the Larimar Ballroom, during a tour of the building Thursday, and Astra Ferris, Chief Executive Officer of the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance, is the third woman in the photo. And the copy reads, Debbie Durham, the Director of the Iowa Economic Development Authority is no stranger to Fort Dodge. She said she visits just about annually, and each time she sees something different. Every time I come, you show me a new project, she told a group of local leaders Thursday afternoon. As she said those words, she was standing on the main floor of one of those new projects, the recently renovated Larmar Ballroom at 710 First Avenue North. It's spectacular, she said of the building. Durham predicted big, positive changes in Fort Dodge, thanks to developments at the Ag Industrial Park called Iowa's Crossroads of Global Innovation, the downtown area, and the Corridor Plaza. In the next five years, you're not going to be able to recognize this place, she said. But she also noted that patience is a virtue when it comes to economic development. You're in this for the long game, she said. Economic development does not happen overnight. Be patient, she added. You're doing all the right things. Continue to invest in your infrastructure. Continue to invest in the things you can control. Durham also saluted the cooperation between Fort Dodge, Webster County, Iowa Central Community College, and the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance. I wish I could just take that to other places, she said. Durham spent most of Thursday with representatives of the city county, the Growth Alliance, and Iowa Central. The group visited various projects throughout the community. Before the group had lunch at the Laramar Ballroom, 
Sadie Anderson, event manager of the facility, gave a quick tour. Anderson is part of the Larimar Acquisition Company, LLC, which bought the building in 2022. The partially renovated building debuted in June of 2023. But Anderson said the work isn't done. She said the next phase will consist of renovating the second floor to create a bar. She said the basement will be remodeled to create a bridal suite and a green room for performers waiting to go on stage. Other places Durham visited included the 3D printer facility at Iowa Central's East Campus, the college's biofuels lab, the Northwest River District, Iowa Crossroads of Global Innovation, Corridor Plaza, the River's Edge Discovery Center, and the 2nd Avenue Row Homes. Our next story, Bill Targets High THC Hemp and Cannabis Products Bans Sale to Minors. This is from the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Business owners and farmers told lawmakers Wednesday that a bill making changes to Iowa's regulation of hemp products would harm Iowa businesses as well as prevent families with children who have severe pain or complications with illnesses from accessing cannabidiol products, cannabis products. House Study Bill 665 comes following the restricted legalization for the state's medical cannabis in 2017, as well as updates for the allowed sale of some hemp products in 2019. In the years since, Iowa has seen an emerging market for growth in synthetic cannabis products for both medical and recreational purposes that fall within the state's limit of 0.3% of THC, which is the psychoactive component of cannabis, for hemp-derived products and through the state medical cannabis program. The bill, brought forward by the Iowa Department of Public Safety, includes measures allowing the, the State Department of Health and Human Services to more directly regulate the sale of hemp-derived and cannabis products. The agency could penalize businesses that are not conforming to Iowa law, such as the sale of products that above Iowa's TH limit or in a non-accepted form like raw flour products. The bill also includes provisions prohibiting selling or giving cannabis products to people under the age of 21 and allows the state to take administrative action against businesses manufacturing and selling alcoholic beverages that contain THC. Scott Booher, that's B-O-O-H-E-R, of Four Wind Farms, which is a hemp product grower and manufacturer, said while he understood the concerns about businesses that are not complying with Iowa's law, the bill would cause law-abiding businesses to get swept up in collateral damage. He pointed to portions of the bill restricting minors from access to all hemp-derived products, including ones that do not contain THC. Some of the customers are buying CBD products for their children to help with issues from behavioral problems to pain reduction, he said. Buher asked for lawmakers to, quote, narrow things down and ensure the proposed regulations are only targeting bad actors. Let's look at what needs to be taken care of instead of just sweeping everything and everybody under the rug, Buher said. Tyson Alchin criticized lawmakers for changing standards about hemp and medical cannabis production. As a licensed hemp grower, 
Alchin said he believes he is the first Iowa producer to grow a product that met the requirements for human consumption. Quote, my flour was packaged and labeled as a food-grade ingredient. Lessons on infusion and extraction for personal use have been planned out and promoted, and HHS approved it on January 31, he said. He continues, and six days later, this bill attempts to ban it. I've exceeded state requirements, requirements which exceed federal guidelines. I've done everything required of me, and the state is con continuously, rather, changing my goal. How can small farms ever get established when the state keeps moving our goal line? Others, including Leslie Carpenter with the Iowa Mental Health Advocacy Group, spoke in support of the legislation in increasing oversight over the sale of cannabis and hemp products. Medical studies show that teens who use cannabis with high THC potency are at higher risk of developing psychosis and schizophrenia. Carpenter said, showing the need for age restrictions. Quote, I want to say I fully support medical marijuana. It's the high-potency THC products and the fact that currently a child can walk into a store and purchase them that makes me very concerned, unquote. Republican lawmakers moved the legislation out of subcommittee on a two-to-one vote. Representative Phil Thompson, rather, Republican of Jefferson, said he was glad to hear that most people are willing to admit there are bad actors, but he did understand the frustration of businesses who are following the rules in place. But this is an important conversation to advance, Thompson said. I appreciate DPS on working on this and bring forth some guidelines on regulating this. Our next story from the front page of The Messenger, The Hybrid Corn Revolution, Remembering Lake City's Seed Corn Heritage. This is from The Messenger. Dateline, or, yeah, uh, Lake City. Hybrid seed corn has been a key to making Iowa one of the world's top corn-producing regions. For decades, Iowa was home to hundred of, hundreds of local, independent, family-owned seed companies. Shelby County alone boasted nearly 20 of these companies. Lake City area seed companies were also part of the hybrid corn revolution, starting with Himes Hybrids. The Heim farm was located in Calhoun Township, just south of Lake City. Howard Heim founded his company in 1937, about a decade after Iowa native Henry A. Wallace founded Hybrid Corn. Um, that hybrid corn company, later known as Pioneer Hybrid, and now known as Corteva AgriScience. Tragedy struck, however, by the 1940s. The August 22, 1946 edition of the Lake City Graphic ran the article, Howard Heim Killed in Auto Accident. Howard Heim, age 38, well known here as the originator and producer of Heim's hybrid seed corn, was killed Sunday in an auto accident five miles south of his home in Bemidji, Minnesota. The Heim family moved to the northern Minnesota town a few years ago when Mr. Heim purchased farming interests a few miles east of there and was successfully operating a resort along with his agricultural pursuits. Howard's brother George and his son Jerry managed the Himes Seed Company near Lake City for a number of years after Howard's death. An ad in the April 16, 1957 Lake City graphic promoted what farmers could expect from Himes hybrids. The ad reads, 
Do you want to cut seed costs to the bone without sacrificing yield or quality? Then you will want to plant Heim's proven trustworthy hybrids, the seed corn with the personal touch. We have two new varieties that have proven superior in comparison and field tests for the past three years. They are 606C and 607C. Our old standbys are still doing an excellent job, and anyone using them wouldn't want to be without them. We also have Redbine 60 Sorghum, a good open pollinated variety. And then it lists, this is all from the ad, and it lists these prices. Flat grades, $10 per bushel, five bushels or more, $9.50. Economy flats, $8 per bushel. Big news broke in the August 8, 1957 edition of the Lake City Graphic which ran the story, Hobart Brothers by Heim Corn Company. And the article read, Ed and Glenn Hobart have announced that they have purchased the Heim Hybrid Seed Corn Company from George and Jerry Heim and have taken control of the business. The new owners, who farm south of Lake City, have been in the seed corn growing business for 25 years. They state that they will follow the policy of the Heims in producing the same high-quality corn. The business was established in 1937. The seed corn is all being grown on the Hobart land this year and will be processed under their supervision. They state that they plan to build their own processing plant next year. John Eichhorn, who graduated from high school in Lake City in 1993, grew up in the Hobart Brothers Seed Company business, which his family ran for the next 50 years. My grandfather Edwin and my great-uncle Glenn Duke Hobart acquired the business from the Himes, Eichhorn said. His mother Carol was the oldest of two girls of Edwin and Irene Hobart and grew up in Lake City. She met Eichhorn's father, Phil, when they both attended Iowa State. After the couple married, Phil served in the Air Force for a few years. In the early 1970s, Phil and Carol Eichhorn moved to Lake City and Phil B came involved with Ed and Glenn in the seed business. While Ed Hobart passed away in January 1974, Icorn and Glenn Hobart continued the seed business. The old article says by the early 1990s, Hobart Brothers Seed invested into expanding and improving operations, including a new warehouse, new seed storage bins, and new seed conditioning, treating, and packaging equipment, John Icorn said. Eichhorn recalled how his father wrote his own Hobart Brothers seed advertisements, which were broadcast on local radio stations. They tended to reflect Eichhorn's unique wit and sense of humor. His commercials were a little corny, Eichhorn said. For Eichhorn, summertime meant working with local kids who helped detassel Hobart Brothers corn. It got pretty hot in those fields around the middle of the day, after wearing clothes soaked from the morning dew and mud that was stuck to your shoes, he recalled. Dad always had a $20 drawing in the afternoon, just to get the workers to come back after lunch. Fall harvest was Icorn's favorite season. I remember being at the top of the corn cribs, nice and warm when it was cool outside, and smelling that seed corn getting dried by the warm propane heat. That's still one of my favorite smells. It's amazing how smells, much like music, can take you right back into a moment of time. Icorn loved shelling corn when Buster McMeekin of Lake City had his Minneapolis Moline corn sheller and Farmall International tractor. It was a blast going out and chiseling corn stalks 
and smelling that soil being overturned, listening to radio stations like KKRL 93.7 FM out of Carroll. I also remember sitting in the truck or tractor with Dad in the evening and watching Jack Dowling of Lake City harvest our soybeans with his John Deere 6600 combine with a six-row soybean head. While Hobart Brothers Seed survived the farm crisis of the 1980s, which marked the end of other Lake City ag businesses like Snyder Implement, big changes would soon transform the future of independent, family-owned seed companies. Family-owned seed companies had a tough time trying to stay afloat during the late 1990s and early 2000s, Icarn noted. When the small seed companies had to purchase parent seed from larger companies, a lot of royalties have to be paid, since the large companies had a lot invested in research and trials. The better the seed, the more you have to pay in royalties, because those seed companies were also using the same genetics, so you were their competition, Icorn said. Also, small seed companies were put into tiers as to what they could purchase based on their size or what they could pay in royalties. As a result, many of the small seed companies were purchased or joined their businesses with the larger seed companies. As he approached retirement age, Phil Eichhorn decided to sell Hobart Brothers Seed around 2007 to Jason and Norm Phillips from Lakeview. When the Phillips family bought the company, they joined with Ag Venture Seeds. By the 2010s, the middle of the 2010s, the former Hobart Brothers Seed Plant and Acreage were sold to Steve and Nikki Gordon of Lake City. While the seed business is gone, the business planted a lifelong love of agriculture in the hearts of Icorn and his older brother Chris. Quote, we all have a lot of great memories of growing up in the family seed business, Icorn said. And then it shows a number of photos um, from the old Lake City paper. It shows an ad for the seed you can depend on. Um, it shows their old, old logo, uh, photos of the building. Pretty, pretty cool vintage stuff. We only have a couple of obits today in the Fort Dodge Messenger. Jeremy Knowles of Tatanka. Um, funeral will be Monday, February 12th, 2 p.m. at the Mason Linhart Funeral Home in Humboldt. Uh, visitation after 12.30 p.m. Monday. So, Visitation 12.30, funeral 2 o'clock p.m. for Jeremy Knowles. And Ruth Vodraska, age 82, passed away Thursday, February 8th, at her daughter's home in Johnston. Services pending with the Lofers Weiler Funeral Home. And we have a local story over here in the sports section. Justin Faferlick shares his fight, Never Alone. And it shows a photo. Um of Justin with his uh, family standing there smiling at the camera. Despite fateful future, Faferlick ready to fight to the end. Justin Faferlick doesn't measure time and hours or days anymore. Life is now all about experiences and moments. Faferlick is at relative peace with what has become a steep and daunting fight. His battle with metastatic melanoma has been met with the courage, determination, and focus his students in the Fort Dodge community have come to expect from the owner of Faferlick Taekwondo Martial Arts Self-Defense and Fitness. Cancer can be relentless, though. 
Faferlick's body has been overwhelmed by the disease, and a month ago, most of his treatments came to a halt, not by choice, but out of necessity. That's what makes this Saturday night's event at the Fort Frenzy so special. This Fort Dodge native and Satan Ben graduate will have the first official mixed martial arts fight of his career in front of the friends and family who have helped him pursue his passion every step of the way. This isn't about the struggle or the battle anymore, but rather an opportunity for closure. This is similar to a bucket list, but I'm using the term last life experience, he said. It will be an emotional night both in and out of the ring on so many different levels. Due to the very short time I have left in this world, I want to get as many last life experiences as I can get. Some of my family and close friends were very concerned about me taking this fight, and rightfully so. I listened, but I made up my mind that I want this last life experience, he said. Faferlick was diagnosed with metastatic cancer in July. Treatment began in early September. The prognosis at the time was grim. Doctors gave the martial arts grandma's grandmaster rather, anywhere from six months to two years to survive. The last six weeks in particular have been difficult on Faferlick, both physically and mentally. At one point, he'd lost 40 pounds. In late December, his liver began to fail at an alarming rate. On December 29, the University of Iowa Hospital saw my updated liver function numbers, he said. We jumped in the car and headed to Iowa City immediately. When the, we got there, the doctor said I wouldn't have made it through the weekend at the current rate. Typical liver function after an alkaline photase test, ALP test, done to measure the amount of ALP in a person's blood, um, ranges from under 40 to 129 units per liter. Faferlick's reading was 2,204. Doctors postponed his treatment regimen on January 5th. The reading stopped spiking, but the cancer began to spread without any combative medicine. His liver numbers still haven't reached a normal range that would allow them to restart the medication. This week I was down to 843, which is so much better, but nowhere close to that 40 to 129 range. When the liver gets healthy, then we will restart with a lower dose of chemo pills or a different combination. But in the past three weeks alone, without treatment and waiting for the liver to heal, my number of tumor locations by the brain, my left lung, liver, kidneys, and a new one in my back have increased, and the size of the tumors have increased. It's getting worse every week. I'm not sure where I may be in three or more weeks, but I'm staying positive and trying to kick the cancer out. Faferlick is no stranger to competition. He's had hundreds of kickboxing matches and thousands of taekwondo bouts, both nationwide and globally, as an athlete, an official, and a coach during a career spanning nearly 40 years. He's a sixth-degree black belt in Taekwondo, holds a black belt rank in Sogo Ryu Bujutsu. He has six state championships, four national titles to his credit, and he's been certified as a level two coach and referee through the USA Taekwondo Team USA. Saturday's event, hosted by Rick Tasler of Brutal Genesis, Iowa, 
will be his first as a fighter in the MMA arena, though. I want to show more than just my taekwondo and kickboxing skills, said Faber Lick. He's a USA, uh, U.S. Air Force veteran who spent 30 years in the military, was deployed to Afghanistan, Iraq, Italy, Norway, Qatar, and South Korea as a member of the Iowa Air National Guard. I want to show takedowns with a judo throw and finish on the ground with a submission. Of course, the plan always changes when you get hit. His bout is the 7th of 11 on the card at Fort Frenzy. Doors open at 6. Action starts at 7. His match will take place at around 8 p.m. I'm really looking forward to seeing and hearing the crowd with family, friends, and supporters, supporters, he admitted. Table seats are sold out, but general admission tickets are still available both in advance and at the door. He confirmed that a 50-50 raffle, raffle will help raise money for his costs. It's about so much more than that, though, said Tassler, who has been promoting fights in the Fort Dodge area since 2006. This is such an honor and something that gets me emotional just talking about it, he said. I really can't put into words how much my friendship with Justin has meant through the years, and I know so many people in and around the area would say the exact same thing. We want all of his support system to be in the same area of the crowd, and I tell you what, when he gets into the ring, it's going to be incredible. This is a bucket list moment for him, and being able to provide this platform for him is the least we can do. What he's going through is tough and disheartening, but if anyone can beat this, Grandmaster Faferlick can. Faferlick's world has been turned upside down by this disease, but his passion for the sport and his community has never wavered. In fact, keeping with a routine has been cathartic in a lot of ways. Quote, I've been spending all day at the Faferlick Martial Arts Gym, he said. He opened the facility 10 years ago. It's very useful to keep me busy and occupied during this stretch of my life. And knowing I have all my family and friends at the gym to visit and talk and talk about memories together. I couldn't do this without my family and close friends. I hope others can clearly see they all hold a special place in my heart. And my desire to be remembered as a perfect son, father, grandparent reflects on my commitment to nurturing meaningful relationships. Faverlick has also looked inward, leaning heavily on the strong partnership, both personally and professionally, he shares with his wife, Deanne, daughter, Kelsey, and her husband, Zach, son, Michael, and his wife, Ashley, and grandchildren, Grace, Aria, and Lucas. I'm so blessed to have these amazing family members in my life, and so blessed that they are all here in Fort Dodge, he said. He retired from the Iowa Air National Guard in 2020 with the rank of lieutenant colonel. I've been so incredibly shocked by the support from the community here in Fort Dodge and around the state as well. Besides family, nothing is more important than this amazing community. Personally, and through our Faferlick martial arts business, we've made a positive impact on thousands of members. It's very cool to teach four generations throughout the years. It's been emotionally overwhelming. As much as we've given back over the years, actually hearing more community members share with me how we've impacted them means the world to me. That's why we do what we do, sharing the passion to help others through their lives, not just in learning self-defense techniques, but working on character development every class with mat chats, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and socially. 
Faferlick's focus remains in the present, but he's also thinking about the big picture, regardless of whether or not he's physically going to be able to see his vision through. My passion now is to leave a legacy of grace as a beautiful inspiration, emphasizing the importance of kindness, empathy, and love in my interactions with others. I want to leave a positive mark on the lives of those I care about, and I'm hoping it leads to a lasting and meaningful impact on future generations. Cherishing my time with loved ones and embodying the values I hold dear can help me achieve my goal of leaving a legacy of grace, he said. And that's all the time we have for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Friday, February 9th, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis. It's been my pleasure. Have a great weekend. And I'm going for the Chiefs.